0: In the New York Times, there's a journalist by the name of David Bricks. He's a Christian journalist, an incredible author, and he writes a diagnosis for what he sees in our culture. So he's going to use um, the realm of politics as his as an example highlighting what he sees in our world. But this is not just exclusive to the realm of politics. We can see this play out in all kinds of arenas of life. And so he highlights... Um, what he sees as the consequences of sin and hurt playing out within our world and within relationships. And so he describes the tension this way. He says this, politics has begun to feel like an arena where many people can process and regulate their emotional turmoil indirectly. Anxiety, depression, and anger are hard to deal with within the tangled intimacy of family life. But political tribalism becomes a mechanism with which people can shore themselves up, vanquish shame, fight for righteousness, and find a sense of belonging. People who feel betrayed will lash out at someone if there is no one there to help them process their underlying hurt. So what he is doing is he is highlighting that when we look at the world, when you look at the tension, the relational turmoil, the brokenness, the the detaching from important relationships, what he is suggesting is that there is some underlying hurt in there that people aren't dealing with that we see play out in the realm of politics. He then goes on to quote the Franciscan friar, Richard Rohr, who, who, just a side note, I would not particularly recommend him for his work on things like the atonement, but his work on inner healing is incredibly helpful. He says, if we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. Right, Understanding that if, it, when it comes to the pain, when it comes to the trauma, when it comes to the hurt, if we don't deal with it, It will spill out into our relationships. If we don't transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. We are all transmitting pain. We are passing on the pain from our own sin, from our own struggle, from the consequences of our own sin. We are passing on the pain from the sins that have been done to us. We're passing on the pain that comes from the consequences of living in a sinful and broken world. And that pain is transmitted to the people who matter the most to us. It is transmitted to the people who are in closest proximity to us, particularly our, our spouses, our, our kids, grandkids, friends, and coworkers that pain is passed on to the next generation. And unless we deal with that underlying hurt, it will continue to spill out and we will continue to look to certain places to be opportunities to deal with that underlying hurt. And my hope for us is that the scripture gives us the place where we can bring that pain in order to see it transformed. In recent years, scientists have been studying a fascinating field known as epigenetics. It's a fascinating rabbit hole if you are into science and addiction and trauma and some of the things that researchers have been discovering. And what they've been doing is, is these scientists have been studying how addiction and trauma can be tracked through genetic markers being passed from one generation to the next. In fact, what scientists are showing is in in studies of mice, they've they've actually separated baby mice from their mothers. And they have been able to track for three generations a change in the, the genetics of the mice because of that trauma that continues to be passed from one generation to the next. One of the most frequently um, cited sources of research in this has to do with Holocaust survivors. The rates of anxiety and PTSD that is passed generations later in in the family lineage from Holocaust survivors is much higher. There's something in the genetics that is being seen as being passed on from generation to generation. Additional research is now happening in this field based on the well-thought idea that addictions, particularly with drugs and alcohol, influences a person's genetics, And it's actually even being expanded to include other areas of addiction, things like pornography or social media use or gaming, that they're studying that all with a hypothesis. So this is not, they have not concluded this, but the hypothesis is that there may be certain genetic tags that get passed down with these addictions as well from one generation to the next based on the previous generation's struggles or sins. And so when the scripture says something like it does in Exodus 34, when it says God does not leave the guilty unpunished, he punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. I just find it quite fascinating that current research is just coming to the conclusion that you can track the consequences of sin for three or four generations. Now there's a lot that we can unpack in that text which will get to in a a little bit, but where I want us to start is with the reality that we can see in a very tangible way that the past influences our present. I come from a family that was filled with alcoholism. My biological dad died because of it, his father was an alcoholic, his family was filled with it, which means when I think about my own family, that there is a responsibility I have to my kids and to their one day kids. And so what do I do with that? Because what science has shown and what the scripture shows is that there is an increased likelihood for me to fall into the same addictive patterns that I have that have been passed on to me. And this doesn't have to be just alcohol or drugs. You can consider the same how pornography use, even if your kids don't know it, could be passed on to the next generation. You can consider how your social media habits, what your kids certainly see, how it's passed on to the next generation, or how anger and gossip, divorce, all have an impact on the next generation. Now, this also doesn't have to be just with your particular sin struggles, it also can be as a consequence of somebody else's sin, as the as result of somebody else's behavior, as the result of growing uh, of experiencing the loss of my dad and his alcoholism, one of the things I, I experience is a fear of death. And I have never had to teach my son to have that same fear. Now to describe that, because that's a common fear, to give you a, a window into my mind, when an ambulance goes by, I begin calculating where my friends and family are in order to determine is that ambulance possibly going to one of them? Or if my wife doesn't text me when she's not feel, feeling well, I begin to play in my mind the conversation I'm gonna have to have with my kids. Right, that's where my mind goes in that, so so it's not just just a general fear, like I begin to play that out in my mind. Now, I know the source of that trauma, I also have a good therapist, um, but but, but here, here's the thing. So when my son has a fear of death, and brings that up in the middle of the night, it's not just his own fear. It's trauma and fear that is passed on from me to him. And so what do I begin to do with the reality that my past impacts impacts his present? This also can happen on large culture-wide levels, because as much as we live in our own families and we deal with the past of our family of origins, you can also apply this to communities. You can apply it to to countries, communities, ethnic groups. We all have collective histories, and so I want to give a couple um, larger-scale, tension-filled examples, because why not? The 60s is about three-ish generations ago just three-ish generations ago, and again, keep in the back of your mind, right, what genetics and exodus both say three or four generations ago. In, the six, in 1969, Ronald Reagan, as governor of California, signed what was the first no-fault divorce law in the United States. And so think now of the present moment we're at and, and, and the way that, we, that our current world thinks of marriage and sexuality. Now, I would suggest, and we are absolutely account- accountable in our own generation for, for what we teach and believe when it comes to marriage and sexuality. I would suggest, though, that in just three-ish generations, something has been passed on to us that the, that the way we have viewed marriage has changed long before many of us were even born. But right, the sins of one generation are passed on to the next. Another example, key moments of the civil rights movement. Rosa, the Rosa Parks bus boycott was in 1955. Martin Luther King Jr., who was largely disliked by political leaders, we love to quote him, they did not when he was was doing his work. He was influential in the 60s, only three-ish generations ago. And so we wonder why in our political world, why there's tension when it comes to the subjects like racial reconciliation. Perhaps there is collective sin that is passed on from one generation to the next. And there is collective trauma that is underlying all of us that hasn't been dealt with. And so we can turn to one realm to deal with it, or we can turn to the realm called the kingdom of God to find healing and freedom the way that Jesus offers it. Right, of course there's tension. This was only three or four generations ago. Every family, every culture, every individual has a past. Even if you describe your family as a healthy, loving family, All of our families, we have baggage, we have sin, we have struggles that get passed on from one generation to the next. This is why throughout the series we are emphasizing the important truth that Jesus gives us the ideal. He doesn't lower the bar of the ideal. He says, here's what I have designed, here is my best, here's what I want you to pursue. Yet at the same time, Jesus doesn't minimize the importance that he works in the midst of the real in the midst of the sin, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of a loss and abandonment and sin and addiction. And so here's how I want us to begin thinking. Your family's past is the prologue to your future family. Your family's past, which means not just your past, which certainly includes it, but also your parents' past and their parents' It speaks of something about your family's future. See, the question isn't, will we have things that we inherit? Or will we suffer the consequences of our parents' choices or grandparents' choices? The question is, how will we respond to what's been passed on? Because again, if we don't transform the pain, we will transmit it. And so what can we do to transform that pain? Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. If you're watching online, we're so glad that you are tuning in. Now, now here, here's the thing. Um, everything we've really talked to up at this point, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is healthy, important work. You can go to a therapist who has no interest in Jesus that will still encourage digging into the fam- your family's past. I would suggest, though... Um, That when it comes to following Jesus, we have something that's even better, that doesn't just discover the source of the pain, but that Jesus is the source of healing from that pain. And so if you're not into the whole Jesus thing, I just want to challenge you to consider the possibility that he might be the one who gives you freedom out of the pain of your sin and your trauma. And so let's consider Exodus 34, where we began just a little bit earlier. No important context for the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus tells the story of a people of the past. When you look at the history of the nation of Israel and Genesis and Exodus, what you'll find is a family filled with trauma and family sins and patterns of guilt and rebellion. There's inherited sin. There's the consequences of sin that gets passed on from one generation to the next. There are patterns within the nation of Israel, patterns of lying, adultery, family infighting, betrayal, and killing. Not just individual sins, but sins that you can trace from patriarch to patriarch even to see... The way that sin weaves its way through the families. And so when we read Exodus 34, I want us to keep in mind that for the Israelites, this is their lived experience. Like when when Moses would speak these words and write these words and they read it, they would say, of course that's true. Like I've witnessed it. I've experienced it. And I would suggest that most of us have that same kind of lived experience. That we have experienced the pain and the consequences of sin that goes from one generation to the next. We've realized the difficult truth that we often can't escape the past. So let me begin in chapter 34, beginning in verse 6. And he, meaning God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord... The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Now, a lot of this, despite how we might first read it, is simply what we've been talking about. It's what epigenetics is just discovering. It's what we, are, what we are often familiar with that, that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree is especially true when it comes to the sins of our parents. Now, in this, though, there are two easy mistakes that we can make, just because, partly because of translation and also just how we might read this quickly. And so the first mistake would be in reading this to come to the conclusion that God is punishing us for someone else's sin. A better translation is what the ESV, um, the way the ESV translate it. Let me read that for you. It says this, God is visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. In other words, your parents' sin or your grandparents' sin will visit you in the present reality of your life. That the sins of the generations before will pay you a visit unannounced and uninvited. And so maybe in your marriage, you're going through a conflict. What you may not realize is that your parents' marriage had an influence on the conflict that you're having in your relationship. Or maybe you are in a dating relationship and you're skeptical of the whole idea of commitment. That often happens because of the sins of your parents and maybe the divorce they experience pays you a visit in the midst of your dating relationship and says, I don't ever want to do what my parents did. Right, that's, that's not you being punished, that's simply their sin is showing up uninvited and unannounced. It influences the relational patterns we have, the way we parent our kids, the way we relate to our spouse, the way we fight. The sins of our parents visit us. This is why for many of you, you are so skeptical of even the relationships you're in because what's been passed on to you, experiences of hurt and abandonment and pain. You don't want what you experienced as a kid. This is also why divorce is so damaging for a kid because it begins to change the way that they think about their future relationships and the way that they relate to other people. Now, the other mistake would be the opposite end of the spectrum and that would be the mistake of thinking, well, if, if this is inherited, like if we've inherited these struggles and this sin, then it's not really our fault. Then we can give ourselves a pass. Like that, well, that's my grand, grandpa's fault. Like he didn't deal with that. That's why I struggle with this. And so I'm not to blame for that. And while it's certainly true, it's easier to repeat the sins of our parents. You are still responsible for your own sins. And so your family's past may set you up for the situation you're in. And the ways you've experienced stress as a child may have set you up to respond a certain way in the midst of stress as an adult. You are still accountable for your own choices. And so in an addiction with pornography, you can't say, well, my my grandpa never dealt with it. You can't say, well, we didn't have that conversation. You are accountable for you. You have to deal with the sin. The sins in your past, the sins in your family's past, and how they have played out in your own life and in your own struggle. Or more precisely, you have to invite Jesus to deal with the sin. You have to invite Jesus to do that hard and healing work. Now again, if you're not into the whole Jesus thing, if, you, if the only work that you do this morning is digging into your family's past and you don't, don't do the work of, of giving that to Jesus, I would still suggest that's actually helpful. That actually will be just beneficial for you mentally. It will be good for your well-being. I just want to challenge that next step, that step that doesn't just discover your past, but also then brings that pain to Jesus in order to let Jesus do what only Jesus can do. And so if we find the pain, the pain of the struggle, when we bring it to Jesus, we can discover the God who loves to transform that pain by his mercy. Now, that same passage actually talks about that God. It can be easy to lose that portion of the passage because we get caught up in the consequences and the punishment in the third and fourth generation. But listen to how it described the character of God. It said, He is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He maintains love, love to thousands, forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. In fact, this is this is the most quoted scripture in scripture. This description of God says that God, when he looks at the sin of your own struggle, when he looks at your repeated patterns of sin, he is compassionate and gracious. When when he sees your family passing on sin to one generation to the next, and he sees the same patterns, the same behaviors, he's not, he, he, he's, it says he's slow to get angry. He's incredibly patient. It says he forgives wickedness and sin and rebellion. The way that Jesus responds to our sin is not the way any of us would deal with the way somebody else has hurt or sinned against us. The Apostle Paul writes about Jesus in Colossians. This, he says, the Son, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. In other words, if you're reading Exodus and it's the picture of the love and the graciousness of God, Paul would say the best way to see that in action is by looking to the work of Jesus. That when you look at Jesus, you can see the grace and the mercy and compassion of Jesus. You can see in the ministry of Jesus, as Jesus heals, he is casting out demons. He is healing the sick. He is inviting the lost in. His stories are about inviting the outsider in. He is inviting the tax collectors in and the sinners in. So much so that that, that the religious are saying, who is this guy who is eating and dining with sinners? But that is precisely who Jesus is. He comes And despite the patterns of Israel's history, he's come to interrupt it. And when it comes to forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin, Jesus' mission is the cross. Jesus doesn't go to the cross because it's like the nice thing to do. He didn't accidentally end up at the cross. In fact, he knew full well that saying the kinds of things he said and inviting the kinds of people he did into relationship with himself, he knew it would get him killed. But that was the mission. The mission was the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus gave his life to interrupt the the future that your past was predicting. Jesus gave his life to interrupt the future that your past was predicting. When you look at your own sin, if that sin is the prologue to the rest of your life, it predicts a future of separation from God, of loneliness and isolation from God. Yet when Jesus goes to the cross, he goes just to rewrite that future. Because I know the choice of you made. I know the wickedness. I know the rebellion. And I'm going to interrupt that story and rewrite the ending. When Jesus sees the trauma that you've been through, the sins that people have done to you, and he sees how that is predicting a story and how your life will play out, Jesus, in fury, because you are a son or a daughter of God, Jesus says, I am going to the cross to fight back against the story that's already being predicted. And Jesus rewrites the rest of the story. When you look into your family's past and you see generational sin passed on from one generation to the next, Jesus goes to the cross saying that I am going to do something that rewrites the story. So it's not about generational sin and its consequences, but it will be generational blessing that goes from one to the next. Now there's this incredible little verse in Exodus that can be so easy to overlook because it gets lost in translation. And in Exodus, it, it uses this phrase, maintaining love to thousands. The best way to actually read that in the original language and many other translations would actually suggest is maintaining love to thousands of generations. See, what the author is trying to do is he wants to make a stark contrast here between third and fourth generations and thousands of generations. That the two aren't even in the same field. They're not even in the same arena. And so are there, is there consequences of sin? Absolutely. For three or four generations, our sin has consequences and it pays visits. But that sin will not go unchecked. That's why Jesus went to the cross to interrupt the pain and the consequences of our sin. But then when it describes the compassion, and the grace, and the mercy, and the slow to angerness of Jesus, it says it's for thousands of generations. In other words, it doesn't ever run out. And so yes, there is a weight and responsibility, especially if you're a parent, when you think about the consequences of your own sin, but no, it goes three or four generations, but The blessing that comes from the grace and mercy of God far outweighs the sin that gets passed on. The generational impact of a person who is formed by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit far outweighs the consequences of sin. Jesus tips the scale in favor of love and mercy. God's promise is, yes, he won't let sin go unchecked. And even more important, his mercy will have no limits. Never runs out. And this is where we find freedom. The freedom is not found in what you can undo in three or four generations. It's not, well, how much work can I do? How can I undo this? How can I rewind the tape and change the scenario? Freedom is ultimately found in the truth. In the, and when I say the truth, I don't mean in a, a, a true idea. I mean a person. I mean the truth in Jesus Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is the place where we begin to find freedom from our sin and generational sin and the consequences of sin. That's why Jesus in John chapter 8 describes it this way. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Or in the words of the therapist Doc from Ted Lasso, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. Because sometimes the truth requires the hard work. The work of digging into the past. The work of dealing with our sin and the consequences of it. Yet at the same time, let us not lose sight of the hope that it's the truth that will set us free. The truth that is a person. The compassionate and gracious and slow to anger Savior that we have. And so the question then is how do we live in that freedom? If, if it's the truth that sets us free, how do, we, how do we go to the places where we find truth? How do we do the difficult, the work? And so I just want to give you a couple ideas that you could put into practice this week. And so this is not a way that you somehow earn freedom, this is simply the reality that as, as we follow Jesus, we can learn some things about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus by trying to do some of the things that Jesus teaches us to do. So I want to give you just a couple of ideas of the way, ways you could put this into practice this week. The first is, is, is ju- just digging into your family's past. And so the, the, this first thing that I, th- I think might be helpful would be you just dig into some of your family history. And so you could do it in a sense like a family tree, right? Have you, your spouse, um, your your kids, you include your parents, grandparents, try to go three or four generations. Um, psychologists call something like this a genogram. Um, you don't have to think in technical terms. You can just really um, map out your family tree. And then as you do it, what you're gonna look for is, is patterns in relationships. And so um, on the family tree include who got divorced. Was there, was there death? Was there divorce? Include where, the, where you can find addiction. Include places you might find trauma. You can also include other relational patterns. Was this person kind of cut off and closed from relationship? And so you map it all out in order to find patterns and see where your patterns of sin and struggle match others in your family history. Another way you could dig into your family's past would be less of charting it out and more of a writing exercise. And so for this, I, I, want, I, I would encourage you, you begin with yourself. And so don't, don't jump right to your family. Start with yourself, really with answering the kind of question of what's your just most pressing need right now when it comes to your emotional, your sense of well-being. It might be health. It might be a relationship. What's the thing that's disrupting your sense of peace or security or well-being? Another way, what would you like to heal or what would you like to see change? And so then I, want, I just encourage you, begin with that and just write down whatever comes to your mind. A Writing exercise isn't meant to be read by other people, so write unfiltered, don't edit yourself, write down whatever comes out. If you get stuck, another, uh, another question would be, if this feeling or this condition never changed, what would I be afraid could happen? And then you just keep writing until you get down to what, would, what you could describe as, like, this is the core fear. Like, this is the fear underneath the fear. And then that's when you begin to ask the, the, the questions that dig into your past. And begin to ask questions like, well, where did, when did this fear begin? Is there a moment I remember feeling that when I was a child? Is there a particular relationship that it's attached to? Do I see this fear playing out in other people in my family's history? Do I see other patterns that reflect this same thing? Is this something that I see in my parents or even in my grandparents? Now the next thing I want to encourage you to do, right, if that's digging into your family's past, I want to encourage you to spend time with Jesus. Because that first step is not really distinctly Christian. And so if you do that, that's great, that's healthy, that's valuable. But as followers of Jesus, the next step is where we will begin to transform the pain and find the hope that comes in Jesus. And so this is is simply take whatever you've been learning from what you've been digging into and bring it to Jesus. And so if you're discovering some of the truth, the hard truth of your own sin, confess it to Jesus. If you're seeing some patterns of sin in your family, Confess your family's sin to Jesus. If you're seeing some hurt from pain and loss and trauma, bring that to Jesus. Jesus loves to interrupt sin and the consequences of it with grace and mercy. So bring that to Jesus and pray and listen and cry and yell, whatever it takes. Jesus can handle it. He's worth trusting with the pain. Bring it to Jesus. Maybe find a psalm. The psalms is an incredible songbook and also prayers of the Bible. Jesus, as a kid, would have memorized the psalms and prayed the psalms. Find one that reflects your own emotion and your own pain and your own struggles with sin or trauma. Memorize it. Pray it. Read it. This is just what the Bible calls prayer and meditation. Which, fun fact, what brain science is showing is that prayer and meditation and worship are all the best things that will most change your brain in order to heal from the sin and the trauma that you've experienced. And so imagine if we began to put that into practice in our life. Imagine if instead of transmitting the pain, we transmitted the work of the Spirit. Instead of transmitting sin and struggle, what if we transmitted things like love and joy and peace? What if instead of being quick to anger, we transmitted something like patience and kindness? What if instead of the addiction, we transmitted self-control? So because as much as our sin has generational impact, and as much as, as generational sin and hurt has had an impact on me, what I know is far more than the sin has had an impact is the generational blessing that has come from the work of the Spirit on my parents. What that has done far outweighs and will continue for thousands of generations. And so you have the opportunity to do the same and imagine the world we might live in if instead of transmitting sin and pain we're transmitting the fruit of the spirit. And the place that happens is we dig into the past and we bring it to Jesus and invite God to do his work. Let me pray for us and we will prepare to celebrate the Lord's supper together. Jesus, we love you, we worship you, we thank you for the work that you do in us We thank you that you call yourself the way, the truth, and the life, and we just invite you into this place to do what only you can do. Jesus, we pray that by your truth that that we would be set free, that we would be set free from our sin, that we'd be set free from our past and our family's past, that you would transform pain into hope, that you would transform trauma into testimony, that you would transform our sin into a gift of forgiveness and hope. And Jesus, as we prepare in these moments to celebrate with your body and your blood the gifts that you give us and the transformative work that you do in us, we pray that you would bring to mind right now the stuff in our past that you would bring to mind our own sin and our own struggles, that you would bring to mind the sins and struggles in our family, that you would bring to mind the consequences of a sinful world and how that's impacted us. Hear us, Jesus, as we confess and lay these before you. Jesus loves to interrupt your sin with his mercy. And while your past may predict a future that is not filled with hope, Jesus went to the cross to rewrite your family's future. And his promise for each and every one of you this morning is that your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.